Part Three, Chapter One of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Three, Chapter One. He had stumbled on Saverne and the studio, a week in Nice with the usual trips to Cannes and Antibes, to Grasse, to Monte Carlo over the Grand Corniche, a week of pleasantly lonely evenings spent in threading the narrow streets of the old town, of strolling along the promenade while the sea sucked and thundered in the soft darkness, a week of the Nice of between seasons, with its crowds of stolid, tweed-clad Germans taking advantage of the reduced rates its shop-fronts half-latticed behind the ladders of painters and window-cleaners, its general air of a busy housewife preparing for important company, and willing, in the meantime, to be rude to the casual visitor. A week was quite enough. On the last day of his stay, with accommodations already arranged for his departure to Italy, Kurt went wandering again. Severne, seen from the motor-road to Cannes, as a steep hill, bristling with lurching tinted houses, had piqued his curiosity before. But always when he saw it, he had been en route to something that seemed more important. Today he took the bus to the market at its foot, and started climbing its narrow cobbled main street. The climb was surprisingly arduous. Halfway up he dropped willingly to a clean-swept doorstep to rest. On up the hill and around the bend the houses continued, leaning on each other for support. Cubicle houses and narrow houses, with walls of cream and ecru, of palest blue and peach and apricot, walls baked to a pastel harmony by the brilliance of the sun, walls pierced with small windows and studded doors, and enlivened with pots of geraniums and washlines gay with starlets and yellows hanging like limp eccentric banners in the heat, an old woman with black shawl pulled tightly over her head, and blue skirt making skirls of dust on the cobbles, clattered carefully down the decline in her wooden sabots. He could have shouted, he continued on up the street, which, with all its divergences, was singularly reminiscent of the great general store across the river in Barton, he passed the church with its massive cracked walls, its deeply recessed windows, and its chalk-defaced door. He passed three entrancingly narrow street entrances that beckoned down the circuitous narrow ways, arched and buttressed now and again, until it seemed the whole small town, like a set of carefully balanced dominoes, might depend for its stability on that or any one of its members. A town of surprising light and shade. He passed two painters, American, obviously, at work, the legs of their easels forced into extravagant angles by the sloping of the street, their canvas stools precariously atilt. At last the summit and the walls of the chateau, ponderous and forbidding with its battlemented top and great ramp which led up to its heavy carven doors. Yet from the inner court a pepper tree waved a green denial to all this grim exterior, and a mimosa trailed its grace over the broken wall. Beyond the triangular Place du Chateau, the street seemed to end in a blue door, but as he crossed 
he saw a passageway, almost incredibly narrow, angling off to either side down a sharp incline along the two walls of the house with the enviable door. He took the right turn and gasped at the expanse of blue that rushed up at him, the blue of the maritime Alps, like a floating cloud, distant and misted, the blue of the glittering Mediterranean, the blue of the whole arching sky, a blue world washed in gold. He turned again, and against the yellow wall read, Studio for Rent. He seemed to know that this was for him. He turned back and knocked at the blue door. The house echoed emptily. He was about to turn away, when a voice from somewhere beyond the wall shouted, Come around to the garden gate, around here to the left. He was met at the gate by a stocky man with a heavy face and a short neck and a head of very black and very curly hair, closely cut. He was dressed in a flaming orange shirt, smeared with paint, and a tattered pair of canvas trousers. Hello, come in, you saw my sign. Yes, I'm interested. Oh. His look was hard to interpret. The garden they were in was irregularly triangular, sloping sharply down and away from the houses, with the blue door in a series of terraces, the whole confined by whole walls of stucco, weathered warmly mellow, running down to the point of the triangle, where they were interrupted by a smaller stucco building with a roof of orange tile. My name's Reuben, Leo Reuben. You've probably heard of me. I'm afraid not. No? I paint, at any rate. That's the studio there. He pointed to the small building at the base of the garden. Paint in the house. There's a good north light in the studio, you see, and there are two living rooms underneath that I've no use for. Come along if you'd like to see them. Kurt followed the broad back down a graveled path, six stone steps, through yet another blue door into a little square room, bright with blue and yellow. The floor was of red tile, the walls plaster, but the crude furniture, the shelves, the dishes, even the tiles of the charcoal oven which jutted out from one corner of the room were blue and yellow, as if some part of the world outside had been distilled in the pigment of their coloring. Two tiny windows with blue shutters, painted crudely with the heads of saints, looked out on the Alps. The other room, yet smaller, held only an iron cot, a wooden chair, and a heavy chest. He took possession next day. His first week in Severn approached perfection, it seemed to Kurt. There was some loneliness, to be sure, but there was a quietness, a rightness about this new and unforeseen life that was deeply gratifying. He brought forth his oldest clothes and bought a pair of canvas sandals to wear on his bare feet. He discovered the joy a fire of pine cones might bring to an evening, and the speed with which an omelet may be burnt over a charcoal blaze. The piano he had had sent out from Nice was ornate with licorice-colored wood and brass candle holders, but it was not a bad instrument, and the tunes he played on it were gay ones. The hills all about were covered with twisting paths. There were no fences, and walking was a joy. There was a gorge, dark with craggy rocks and murmurous with its tiny torrent not far away. There were other towns within the scope of an afternoon's walk, where, when the day began to chill, 
one could get great bowls of steaming tea and Provence honey in blue jars, with little toasted buns to spread it on. There were closed gardens where oranges glittered among glossy leaves, and walls were more provocative than protective. There were nights when the stars were so bright that the sleeping town glowed dimly in their light. Then his steps would echo alarmingly in the quiet streets, and he would walk quickly, a little guiltily, at this unseasonable hour of ten, when all good citizens were snoring in the darkness, until he came to the quieter path of clay and pebbles that led through gorse and ground pine to a hilltop where one could see the town, a pale silhouette against the dark sweep of the sea, and the far glow of lights from Nice, and, to the right, the smaller constellation that was in Tibbies, and the ever-repetitive questioning of the lighthouse on the cap. What occupied his mind on these golden days he would have been hard put to tell. The summer at Fontainebleau, pleasant as it had been in many respects, with its new friendships, its quaint environs, its almost nightly excursions on foot or bicycle through the clean shadows of Les Forêts, with suppers of coarse bread and cheese and strawberries, and Bordeaux at Barbizon or Corbet, the summer had been tiring, too. The slight but certain feeling of obligation his scholarship imposed on him had made him, perhaps, more industrious and more conscientious than many of his fellow students. And now, with two months of loafing ahead, he was glad simply to live like some young and irresponsible animal in the glory of this new place, to bring himself into a sympathetic kinship with it. He thought of his work very little. There was in him a quiet consciousness that the source, the spring of his inspiration, was there, ready to his touch when he should want it. He thought often of New York and the small triangular world within it that was his. From Derry and David he heard often. There were only assurances, these from David, of the continuance of the ideal, of the sacredness of it, the certainty of its rightness and its durability. He himself had slight need of such assurance, for the ideal had dominated him with an ascetic persistence since their parting in New York. So fervent was it that he hardly thought of his body at all. Its hungers were fed by a white flame, appeased and nourished and whipped to lethargy by the stark beauty of the ideal. From Chloe he rarely heard, and he regretted her silence. The shock she had sustained at their parting must have been, he now realized, greater than he knew, and he wondered at his daring on that distant night. She had seemed to emerge from it, but as he remembered those last few hours with her in June, he had misgivings. She was so strongly a creature of moods, it seemed scarcely credible that the strange reversal of emotion she had displayed that night could have deepened and endured to conviction and acceptance. Then came rain, unprecedented rain. For a week the windows streamed with it, the garden ran with muddy rivulets, the hills were obscured behind the sliding thunderous curtain of silver, all day, all night, the soft thunder of rain. There was nothing to do but sit inside and wait for it to stop. The fire helped to dispel some of the dampness but Kurt's depression it could not dispel. Day after day, night after night, the downpour continued. 
it was hard to work even, for into the music the insistent and monotonous drum of the rain would force itself. He wrote a song. I have been prisoned with bars that keep more rigorously the stars from shining through my window-pane, that steel, November's leaden rain. It started so, but he gave it up in disgust. And then came a letter from Chloe. It was surprisingly thin. It read, Dear Kurt, I can be quiet no longer. I'm pretty certain you won't know how utterly you are being fooled. Derry, as I don't believe you are aware, is living with David. They have a studio in the village, God knows what for. They seem, or at least David does, to be happy. As to Derry, I'm doubtful. David fits into the picture. He is artificial and weak. Derry, as you know, has very little mind of his own when it comes to relationships such as these. He's carried away with the glamour of this one. They are surrounded by pretty boys, and the whole thing sickens me. As to Derry, I give him up. He's a fool, and he'll get over it in time. But you, Kurt, I like you too well to see you deluded, and I'm pretty sure you were wrong in what you told me the night before you sailed. David has nothing to offer you but a spineless sort of idealism, and you have too much of worth, Kurt, to allow him or anyone like him to dissipate it. I seldom see them, as I won't go down any more. David has money, from some source. Derry has a job, though how he keeps it I don't know. David is supposed to be taking graduate courses at NYU, but he seems to be neglecting them sadly. Hence that he is writing. You are such an incurable idealist, Kurt. Don't let an inferior ideal possess you. He read the letter again and let it slip to the floor between his knees. Half-thoughts swirled uncertainly in the aching emptiness, and the rain thundered on the tiles. It gurgled in the eaves. He put on his jacket and went out into it, bareheaded. The hills were gone, the sea was gone. There were only the rough cobbled streets, streaming with water, and the gray walls hedging him in. He walked till he was shivering before he came dumbly back to his own door. His fire was out, and he was too miserable to notice his discomfort, too upset to consider how much of what Chloe wrote might be false. He was conscious only that his carefully schemed world, so strange, and yet so simple and perfect, and to him transparent, like the fragile creation of some skillful glass-blower, had shattered. His faith that had kept him aloof and assured through these lonely months was dissipated. He could have laughed had he not been too choked with despair, the despair of disillusion. Fool, 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 beat and echoed emptily in him. It was then that the unforeseen, the coincidence that makes life often seem so fictional and fiction so living, occurred. The postman brought a telegram. It was from London, and two days overdue. It read, Arriving Nice Wednesday, train blue, may stay some time. How about Severn? Can you meet me? Tony. Tony McGarren. He looked at the telegram again, and realized with a start that this was the day. His watch told him that he had but half an hour to catch the bus to Nice, and he must meet Tony. He threw on his coat and slipped and clattered down the Rue Piolette. He was just in time. He hardly knew what he felt. Tony McGarren. He knew he would be glad of Tony's company, 
but Chloe's letter, above all else, rang in his ears. Tony he had hardly expected to see again. On the boat coming over he had first seen him. A slender, golden young man with light hair, very wide blue eyes, and a sensitive, thin-lipped mouth whose smile was a delight. On shipboard he was everywhere, knew everyone, and yet he was not too bumptiously self-assertive. He knew everyone, that is, save Kurt, who sat in his deck-chair with a book and looked on. Kurt fancied sometimes, at dinner, on deck, that this young man, whose name he did not know, and whose very genuine popularity faintly irritated him, was watching him curiously, and his indifference became more noticeable. The last night out he was on the foredeck. It was a brilliant night, with a great low moon and a smooth sea. In the morning they would be in France, and at noon in Southampton. The dull vibration of the ship's motors slowed, and a far small light to the left, flashing in yellow deliberation, was England. He stood, bareheaded, for a long time, the soft wind folding in around him, until the strolling couples had all gone and he was alone. Then, of a sudden, he was not alone. Hello. Oh, hello. Grand night. Isn't it? You, I don't think I've met you. I've noticed you so often. You seemed, if you'll pardon my saying so, so well worth knowing. You're Kurt Gray, aren't you? I'm Tony McGarren. He looked at Kurt, smiling. Kurt regarded him curiously, shyly. He too was bareheaded. Over his dark coat a white scarf was wrapped like a stock around his throat. In the moonlight, the wind whipping his light hair and his head, he was Byronic. Like the pictured hero of some Victorian romance, he went on. You must have thought me an awful ass on this trip, stewing around all day and all night with everyone. You were so quiet yourself. I wish I knew how you do it. I don't seem able to help myself. I always do the same thing. I know everyone and have no friends. He laughed ruefully. And so the conversation began, and at last developed into a mutual recital, as such conversations are likely to do. On Kurt's part, because in this new acquaintance there was a magnetic urgency he found it hard to withstand. On Tony's, because, as he said, he couldn't help it. I'm a conversational exhibitionist was his own appraisal. He was an actor, and he was going to London to appear in a Philip Berry play. He was twenty-one. His father had been Scotch, his mother Milanese. He had been born in Brussels, educated in Edinburgh, and later at an exclusive private school in Connecticut, and for a short time at Amherst. He had run away from college in his freshman year and managed to get on the stage in New York, where he had met with some success and now here he was, with an aura of adventure about him so different from Kurt's quiet background, that there was in Kurt an immediate and perhaps slightly envious sympathy for this quixotic young man. They had leaned against the rail, talking until the first pale rays of dawn showed the dove-gray hills, and Cherbourg standing against them, dim and aqueous. Later in the week they had met again in London, this, in the brief stay Kurt allowed himself there, before going on to Paris in Fontainebleau. Kurt had seen the play, and found Tony to be a surprisingly capable and attractive actor. They had dined together once. 
Since he had been in Severne, he had had three highly dramatic and very brief letters, for life to Tony was a game of leapfrog from one romantic episode to another. His openness to life was a constant dare, and things happened to him. Kurt was always amused, half-incredulous, and invariably surprised, because his own life in contrast so smooth and easy to trace. Don Juan and St. Francis in a single body, thought Kurt. And here, with the unpredictableness of a summer shower, was Tony coming to Severn. The train, fortunately, was late. He would have missed it otherwise. The rain had continued to fall, and every occupant of the bus, in ascending or descending, it seemed, had taken double the usual amount of time, shaking off the wetness or preparing to brave it. The sun, when Nice was at last achieved, seemed almost incredible. An omen? He hoped so as he ran for a taxi, and then arrived at the station he found he must still wait. He paced the platform under the dripping glass roof of the car sheds, now a glitter in the sun, and at last, with a shrill tooting and an attending and vaporous cloud of steam, the train slid to a reluctant stop. It was easy to find Tony. He descended from his carriage in an aura of correct arriving, the handsome young adventurer doing Europe. A West End topcoat was flung over his shoulders, and he was surrounded by a mound of gleaming baggage. Kurt, dodging excited Frenchman, saw him waving an enthusiastic farewell to a dapper officer in the door of a compartment. He turned, in greeting as enthusiastic, to Kurt, as the train pulled out unnoticed, amidst their shaking of hands and furious friendliness. At last, how do we get to Severn with all the impedimenta? There was the bus and the tram. But the dazzling trunk. I'm broke, you know. Kurt, not yet familiar with Tony's extravagances, verbal and financial, looked at the expensive luggage and tried to imagine the cost of traveling in a first-class wagonlet on the train. How about a taxi? How far is it? About twelve miles. It had cost a fortune. But a taxi it was, and the bill of more than a hundred red francs, which to Kurt seemed enormous, more than a week's rent, Tony paid without question, and his tip to the driver was munificent. It was dark before Tony was finally installed in two unused, hastily cleaned rooms under Reuben's house across the garden. Reuben had consented, with his usual gruff reluctance, to Tony's occupying these quarters. He muttered in his thick throat and growled his unwillingness, though all the while Kurt knew he was eager to rent. And he did his best to make Tony bargain. But Tony agreed to Reuben's first tentative suggestion, and only asked innocently, when the painter had stopped away, did he jip me, do you think? Unpacking was for Kurt a diversion and a privilege. The shining baggage was as correct within as without, a dream of sartorial perfection, and its disgorgement was accompanied by Tony's staccato recital of his trip from London. Prince Henry had been in the next compartment. Prince Henry came down to Cap Ferrat to visit the Duke of Connaught. The prince's equerry had been most friendly. It was he Tony had waved at in Nice, and Tony was full of hilarious anecdotes concerning the royal family. 
Kurt sat in a windowy embrasure, grinning and silent, and for the time forgetful of his trouble. They went for dinner to the small pension near the chateau where Kurt sometimes took his evening meals. The gutter still gurgled with water, and the dampness of the cobbles rose vaporous in the early dusk, broken by the light of a ripely yellow moon through torn, uncertain clouds. As Tony had been in the boat, so he was in the dining-room of the pension, the immediate center of the whole strange group, from the plump, rusty-haired lady from Dublin, who painted watercolors, to the old and somewhat torn Comte de Brise, who, it was reported, had distinguished himself by keeping the harbor at Brest swept free of mines during the war. They were all talking together before dinner was over, and the more recent events of Tony's life were known to them all. By the time the inevitable apricots arrived, it was hard to get away. They managed to at last, however, and the fire in Kurt's damp small room was pleasant. A wind, heavy with wet, flowed blackly down the street. Kurt and Tony sat, their feet propped against the tiny stove. Tony talked, of himself, of the berry play, of the foibles of a particularly blonde and vapid heroine in English pictures, of a friend's sudden departure for New York, and the consequent offer of his house in Chelsea, of the house itself, next to the Sitwells, of the Scotch cook, of the talkie he might make, and then, you may just as well tell me what's eating you, Kurt. Kurt's eyes lifted in surprise. What do you mean? Oh, come on, you know you've been, well, if you'll excuse my saying it, you've been on the verge of bursting into tears ever since I came. Rats! You can't fool me, Kurt, me boy. I'm a smart little feller who's been about. You're either in love or out of it. Which is it? You're all wrong. And Kurt hugged his secret yet more tightly within him. It shouldn't be told. It must burn itself out, bitterly, smolderingly hidden. You can't fool me, you know. I'm here to stay for a while. And if you don't tell me tonight, I'll find out tomorrow, or a day after that, or I'm not the man I think me. Kurt smiled half-heartedly. An analysis free of charge, my specialty. You're an introvert extraordinary, and I'm an extrovert inordinately. How's that for a start? Swell, said Kurt, grinning. But how about it? I thought this was to be an analysis of me. Oh, you'll find me mixed up in it, don't worry. I'm mixed up in everything. Good Lord, Tony! It was no good even pretending at seriousness, and yet the dull pain of the morning had not lessened. Chloe's words, I like you too well to see you deluded, were a persistent minor accompaniment to the inconsequential cadenzas of Tony's chatter. See here, Tony's voice was insistent. I'm really serious now. You feel rotten, and I know your kind. You'll let things eat you and gnaw you until you wear yourself out and you come to some sort of a melancholy solution in the end, maybe. But it's such a rotten way, such an unsatisfactory way out. If you'd only get it off your chest, it would be over and done with, right? There's nothing wrong with me, Tony, Kurt insisted. Oh, hell, if you're going to be stubborn. They were silent. Kurt feared, and could not tell why he feared, Tony's good night. And yet he waited yearningly to be alone in the darkness. And yet, and yet, I, 
I had a letter this morning, Tony, that was upsetting. That's all, really. I'm sorry it's made me disagreeable. You're not disagreeable. You're unhappy. Was it from home? No. No. Not money? No. Then it's what I said at first. Kurt kicked open the door of the stove, and the red flicker of firelight pervaded the room. He felt Tony's eyes, searching, quizzical, amused, upon him. Isn't it? he insisted. I suppose so. Oh, shan't we call it a day? I'm tired. The sun will be out tomorrow, maybe, and we can walk. I think it's the rain as much as anything. All right, we'll do it. But don't think for a moment that you're shaking me off. I'll be hot on your trail tomorrow, and I'm a great little detective, and a great little comforter, too, you'll discover. He rose and knocked the ashes from his pipe. Good night. Good night. Now for heaven's sake go to bed. Don't sit here and watch the fire go out. It's a romantic and insidious occupation. The next two days were inexplicable to Kurt. He had grown used to being alone, and Tony's presence was a novelty he could not at once adjust himself to. He had a suspicion that Tony was purposely being insistent in his companionship. Certainly he was ever-present. Kurt would hear his shout in the morning, with a sleepy start, and rise to let him in, clad in silk pajamas and a crimson dressing-gown. He would be standing in the garden with a flower or two to decorate the breakfast-table. He would launch immediately, and with no reticence whatever, into the narration of more tales of his own life. They were unfailingly amusing, and Kurt marveled at his frankness. He himself could hardly conceive of such shameless disrobing of the past. It made, somehow, his own secretiveness seem miserly. Yet he could not fancy himself divulging these prized, these cherished experiences to anyone. He was a miser of his emotions. Tony's talk was principally of one Joda and their mutual escapades. She was a New Yorker to the tips of her trim and efficient fingers, not beautiful, not even pretty, but smart, and with a body slim and fine and sweet and desirable, and ready, apparently, for Tony whenever he should desire it. Kurt watched Tony curiously during these recitals, aware that his own silence must make him seem either very inexperienced or very shy. At the conclusion of each anecdote, Tony would press him for confidences, but Kurt would only put him off, whereupon Tony, with a shrug of his shoulders, would start another tale. I'm a regular Scheherazade, and you will be too, you devil, before I'm through with you. You've probably got a whole harem back in Manhattan, and sit here scoffing inwardly at my shabby loves. Isn't it true? Kurt was embarrassed, annoyed, and angry at himself for his annoyance. He liked Tony, one couldn't help liking him, and these stories, so theatrical, seemed singularly at variance with the personality that featured so glowingly in them. Tony was vital to an unusual degree, Kurt realized, but his head was that of a dreamer, and the fineness of his nostrils, the sensitiveness of his lips and hands, belied the animal gusto of his escapades he related. At last, with a bravado sired by desperation, Kurt made the plunge. Tony, I've never had an affair with a girl. What? I mean it, I never have. So if you think you're going to lure me into confidences by these stories of yours, you're mistaken. 
but kurt you're you're twenty-three two years older than i and oh come on you're not half so surprised as you're pretending but you must have some outlet it's not human why isn't it human we're not animals but we are animals that's just it when a boy is old enough to want a girl it's normal that he should have her it's animal and normal if he doesn't he's abnormal yes kurt was vaguely angry that's for me i suppose the animal ideal is the right one of course of course it is you think you are an idealist kurt gray and you're just damn scared that's all i know what life is like in towns like the one you come from prudish and petty and religious in the wrong way i am a pagan my parents were always queer always out of the rut of the ordinary they died before i was twelve both of them there have been no anchors tied to me kurt was silent there was truth in what tony said and yet he felt a tantalizing certainty that somewhere there was a flaw in the argument and it irritated him that he could not find it he could think of nothing to reply and tony sat regarding him quizzically after a time he spoke kurt would you like to hear about my first love affair i suppose you think i should for my own enlightenment really though i've read the usual novels you know don't be sarcastic i'm not reprimanding you god knows just what are you doing i'm trying to find out what's wrong with you you mean wrong with me at the moment or wrong with me generally and permanently he smiled both and i've a hunch there's one answer see here he was suddenly serious and leaned forward it's not what you think my life has been so different from yours i'm years older than you in experience after my mother died there was plenty of money for a while i had a guardian and i was sent to kent school when i was fourteen i was shy too except when i was acting and i acted most of the time i guess i was fifteen when they chose me to be leading lady in the school play i loved it and i was convincing i think the chap who played the hero was sixteen and big for his age he was on all the teams and i admired him i had never dared really to try to know him he wasn't in my class but there we were in the play he was very bashful the fellows kidded him unmercifully and he wouldn't rehearse kissing me in the last act we were both ashamed the coach did his best but it wasn't until the last rehearsal that he really did kiss me you'll think me sentimental kurt but that kiss was something i remember neither of us said a word after the rehearsal i remember we dressed and because we had so much to do with the play we were the last to leave we went out together i remember we'd rehearsed in the gym and old pop shouted at us when we went out to latch the door and snap out the lights dick snapped off the lights and we stood in the darkness with just a square of light through the screened glass door he came to me i couldn't see his face but his voice was thick and strange tony he said tony shouldn't we rehearse that again and then he grabbed me and kissed me over and over again and then he shoved me away and ran through the door he left school at the end of the term and i never saw him again that was my first love affair he settled back watching kurt narrowly the daring how had he the courage to tell of this you're shocked no do i know why you're not shocked i don't know do you kurt though fascinated 
kept his eyes on the floor. He was like a diver probing the depth of an unfamiliar pool. He leaned forward again in his chair. Of course I do. You're homosexual. Kurt sprang to his feet and strode to the door, his hand on the latch, his mind pounding with confusion. Tony said nothing. The little stove cracked furiously. At last Kurt turned again, and leaning against the door, fixed his eyes on Tony, who was smiling strangely. I don't like that word. It's highly scientific. Oh, I know that, but it makes me sound like a biological freak of some sort, to be classed with morons and cretins and paranoiacs. And that's probably just what the jolly little scientists would think about it. No, Kurt, it's not the word that hurts you. It's having your little secret dragged out into the light. I was right, wasn't I? Kurt's silence was affirmative. I'm always right. It's intuitive. We queer ones can spot our kind anywhere, any time. Be honest. On board the boat, wasn't there something between us before we ever met? I knew it, didn't you? Yes, I knew it. You've been over here how long? Four, nearly five months. And you haven't misbehaved even once. Kurt shook his head. He felt willless before this barrage of questioning. All right, I've diagnosed your case. Shall I prescribe? Prescribe. Very well, Mr. Gray, I'll do so. You need two things, like most patients, an immediate relief and a permanent cure. So be docile. Your immediate relief is easy. I'll fix that myself. The permanent cure is another thing. For that, you'll need a mistress. Kurt felt himself pale, and a slow anger rose in him. What right had this debonair, this disconcerting youth, to unmask him and criticize him and correct him? You think I'm pretty much a mess, I take it. His tone was stiff and hurt. Oh, come, don't be uppish. I'm only trying to tell you why you are so damned unhappy, and I'm right. Oh, of course you are right. Cut the sarcasm. I am right. I know your secret, don't I? Tony, I'm sorry I was angry, but I can't help it. You've got my secret all right, but only such a skeleton of it. I, I know all about that, too. Well, such being the case, don't you think it's up to you to do a bit of narrating? Kurt was quiet, thinking confusedly. Why not tell? And yet why? And yet why not? And at last, with an effort, he did. But it was the fire he watched, and one of Tony's slender hands, not Tony's lips, which he feared might curl, or his eyes, which might shine with amused derision. That he did not want to see. So the story came out. His home, his boyhood, his college days, his almost accidental initiation into this strange world of strange young men. Derry, his groping for a faith to justify his desiring flesh. David, Chloe, the ironic triangle that had shattered itself on a bench in Central Park. His ideal, always his ideal, Plato and Havelock Ellis and David's liturgical symbolism, all fused into a high credo by Kurt's own burning need for such a credo. Tony listened quietly to the stumbling end. Then he leaned forward and put his hands on Kurt's knees. Look at me, Kurt. Kurt turned his head and lifted his eyes. 
half afraid of what the face might reveal. He was reassured. Listen to me, boy. I've heard I don't know how many stories from I don't know how many different fellows about this sort of thing, and how it came to be with them. They're all alike in ways, and all different, too. There's something in your story, though, that's stronger than most, because there's something in you that's stronger. You were lucky, you and Derry, to drift into the thing as you did. We're not all so fortunate. He smiled, bitterness twisting his lips. Your story is different there. It's different, too, in having a girl in it all. And it's different most of all because it's cleaner than most. And it's awfully much less promiscuous. Kurt, please don't think I've just wormed these things out of you for curiosity or to satisfy my own perversity. It's not that. Truly it's not. I do think my prescription is right. What about Chloe? The sudden intrusion of the specific again sent Kurt's resistance rising like an icy flood. Girls are out of it, Tony. I've told you that. And I'm telling you you don't know. You think I'm an enigma because I know both things. I had to make myself be normal, Kurt. Drive myself to. And it was hard as hell. But I did it, and I learned to like it. A woman's body, boy, is a sweet thing. But I couldn't, Kurt protested. I'm just not made that way. What do you mean you're not made that way? You're not deformed, are you? Your organs are normal, aren't they? It's mental, Kurt. All mental. Here was the old, old argument again. The one he had fought over so often, so futilely, and at last, he thought, to a successful finish, begun all over again. He rebelled at it, and at this disturbing creature, whose mind was jousting at his own sad certainty, and threatening to topple it once more to the ground, he burst forth. Oh, you know, you know, you don't know. You don't know me. You don't realize what you're saying. Oh, yes, I do. Tony's voice was distressingly calm. I know what your ideal is. It's rather fine, but it won't work. You mean a man can't love a man? You mean I don't love Derry or David or they me? You mean you didn't love the boy in the school play? I don't mean that at all. I thought until I met you I was disillusioned for good and all. I don't mean you've changed me much, but you've surprised me chiefly. I didn't know anyone of our kind could be so pure, so abnormally innocent, so late in life. He laughed. You say our kind. That means something, doesn't it? Of course it does. I don't say we're like the run of men. We're not, obviously. The run of men are disgusted with our sort of thing, with a disgust we can never fathom. But on the other hand, we can go them one better. We can have their kind of love, and ours too. We can love and be loved. We can make love and receive love. We can be man and woman both. And I, Tiresias, have foresuffered all, and acted on this same divan or bed. What's that? asked Tony. It's a poem, but never mind. There's another line I don't care so much for. Oh, Tony, it all sounds well as you say it. But mine sounds well, too, though not quite so glib. The trouble with you is this love business. I know what it is. It's exalting and fine for a while, and then it's a torture machine that eats the heart out of you. It's suspicion and jealousy and unhappiness. It's the bunk, and I'm through with it. 
How can you get through with it? Love might get through with you, I should think. But how can you get through with love? You can't. You're a deep one, Kurt, and I've a notion that this letter of yours from Chloe is the first real blow your love has had, isn't it? I suppose it is. Well, maybe there will be more. Take my word for it. I might even deliver a few myself. What do you mean? Never mind, just now. They fell into an uneasy silence. It was as if an invisible veil had drifted between them, making the harmony each desired a nebulous impossibility. Kurt accepted it glumly. Tony writhed and tried to tear it apart. Look here, Kurt. Our problems are so different. I've told you of my amours with various girls. There have been many more fellows than girls. I've been shockingly promiscuous. I've slept about rather indiscriminately, and— You wouldn't let me say that of you, Tony, Kurt interrupted. Tony smiled. Probably not, but I have, really, and— You've— you've slept with people you didn't love? Good God, yes. That seems ugly to me. Ugly? Not at all. That's where we're so different. You imagine you must have love, whatever that may be, mooning and sighing and mental elation and despair, to justify, to consecrate the animal part of your love-making. That's the bunk. Love-making is just a jolly good game, that's all, like tennis. If I see someone I want to sleep with, for whatever reason, for what he says, or how he looks, or what he is, I do my very damnness to arrange it. And when it's done, it doesn't mean a bit more than a game of tennis would mean. That's the way to take your love, Kurt. Take it for the moment, drop it, and forget it. Do you always forget it? Always. You're lying, Tony, and you know it. Well, perhaps. I make a pretty good job of forgetting, at any rate. And that's better than what you're doing this minute, half sick with worry and fear for someone three thousand miles away may be doing or saying or being. What about Joda? Oh, Joda, love's all alike, Kurt. People don't think so. You know that, and I know it. We have to be on our guard every minute. It's damn funny these people who call themselves normal can't see that. I've known men who loved their dogs and their horses more than their wives, and nobody ever accused them of being queer. Oh, no, they are normal, he men, and we're perverted. And there's no difference, none at all. You love a boy just as you love a girl. It's less satisfying, but that's physical, and has nothing to do with the emotion. The emotion's the same. Kurt was silent, confused, buffeted about by this strange and perverse discourse, as by a playful wind, now in agreement, now in smoldering, inexplicable rebellion. He did not know what he thought, where he stood. He waited dumbly for this dismaying conversation to end. Chloe's letter... I don't want to see you deluded, seemed confirmation enough of the rightness of Tony's hedonism. Yet something dark and deep cried out against it, cried out for the perfection of love, of the unfolding and consummate love that makes of each lover both slave and master, both lover and mistress, for the complete reciprocation of love that poets dream of, for the complete, full, inundating resolution of the dissonances of two personalities. Love is not love that alters when it alteration finds, came ringing to his mind. But Tony, in exasperating tangent, started reciting, 
with the persuasive skill of the actor, the subtly poisonous lines of Swinburne. For the crown of our life as it closes is ashes, the fruit thereof dust. No thorns go as deep as the roses, and love is more cruel than lust. Time turns the old days to derision, and loves into corpses or wives, and marriage and death and division make barren our lives. Come here, he said. You're going to take the cure. He took Kurt's hand and pulled him, bemused and uncertain, into the bedroom. End of Part 3, Chapter 1